my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello and welcome to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Today's guest is Christopher Waldekrantz, a Swedish creative strategist and award-winning art director. As business director and founder of the Odd Society in Copenhagen, Denmark, Christopher is a frequent lecturer at top communication and business schools throughout the Nordic countries, helping agencies to elevate their digital and creative expertise. Welcome, Christopher. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy that this past year is finally starting to come to an end. I'm fully vaccinated now, so I make the most of that. And now I'm in Stockholm, so I left Copenhagen this morning. Tomorrow I'll go to Spain. So right now my life is flying. Nice. <laughs> yeah. What part of Spain? So my boyfriend's parents, they have a house in south of Spain, outside of Malaga. We're going to be down by the coast, Mediterranean coast, for a few weeks. So that will be really nice. Nice. A nice little getaway. Exactly. I mean, when you run your own business, you're never really free. So we're going to work from there, but it still feels a bit more like a holiday when you kind of leave and change of scenery and all of that. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm guessing change of climate too. Very much so. Yeah. I love it when it's hot and especially when it's hot enough and you can actually go to the ocean and swim because if you do that in Denmark where I live now, even though it's hot, like the ocean is still really cold and mm. I'm picky with stuff like that. You know, it needs to be 22 degrees plus for me to even dip my big toe in. So it's, <laughs> it'll be really nice to kind of, you know, get away from the north of Europe and enjoy this Mediterranean heat. Have you been out to California before? I have. I uh, actually went to San Francisco because I was lecturing at the Academy of Art University there for a while. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I went to California. And that was in June. And in my head, California in summer would be super hot. But San Francisco was really cold. And everyone kept telling me that you should be back in like October. That's when it's really nice. So I kind of missed that. And also actually went to Los Angeles a few years later. And that was beautiful. Yeah, I asked that because I'm from Arizona, and when I first jumped into the Pacific Ocean, I was surprised at how cold it was. <laughs> yeah, crazy, huh? No, I don't think I actually swam, because that was in March, so it was a bit too cold to kind of hit the ocean. But to be in LA and sort of soak up the vibe, and then we went out to Joshua Tree and went to Palm Springs and all that, and that was beautiful. I love that part of the world. Yeah, I've never been to Joshua Tree, but yeah, Palm Springs is really nice. Yeah, and but Arizona, isn't that kind of similar, like, nature-wise? It depends. Yeah, I'm from Phoenix, which I think is the hottest part of the state. But California is cool because you get different parts of nature, you know, like within a 100, 200-mile radius. And then you have the water. I grew up in Stockholm, and Stockholm, for everyone who's never been to Stockholm before, is the capital of Sweden, and it is built on seven different islands, like main islands, and then we have this archipelago with like 20,000-ish islands. I always grew up really close proximity to water, and so 
for me, it was like when I left Stockholm, I was like, I have to live in a place that is not necessarily walking distance, but close enough to sort of open waters. Otherwise, I get like claustrophobic. So when I moved to Paris and I lived there, I was like, that was tough because I just felt like I couldn't breathe. It's just so dense. And, you know, you're in the middle of the country. I would guess that Phoenix is kind of the same thing, right? Very similar. Yeah. So I discovered you through our mutual friend, Patrick, and he turned me on to your Swedish language podcast. I don't want to mispronounce <laughs> the name. Berg Ministeriet. It means the gay ministry. Yeah. <laughs> I started from the very beginning and started listening to it. And for me, you know, I'm learning Swedish. I really like it. Do you get it? Um, I get the overall feel of each episode. One of the things that I discovered right away is because of the humor, it pulls me in right away. And the gay humor is similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. So sometimes I would be listening and then you guys would say something. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I know what you're talking about now. And that would kind of help me a little bit more. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I think learning new languages is, is one thing to go to school and kind of study the list of words and all the rules and all of that. But to kind of get an in that is cultural, whether it be humor or entertainment or art or whatever, it really helps to kind of understand also the context of how to use the language and sort of tonality and all of that. So, but also I'm sorry that Bergman says, what's your sort of way into Swedish? Because you'll probably be ruined <laughs> <laughs> with all the crap that we're talking about. Yeah, it's been a fun journey. We started the podcast, is it 11 years ago, I think, 2011, I think it was? No, so 10 years ago. Just as a hobby project between myself and five other friends and also my ex who we were together at the time. And it was just an, like podcast was still a kind of a new thing. And so we wanted to kind of explore that medium and use it as a reason to meet up every week and to just talk about things that you would normally not necessarily talk about. And it was really, really good because it really sort of made our relationship way more fundamental and deep because we talked about subjects that you would normally not just discuss. Yeah. And we just kept going. And now, 10 years later, they're still going strong. And I'm not a part of it anymore since I moved to Denmark a few years back. But um, the podcast is alive and well, which is really fun. Now, had there been other podcasts that dealt with gay, not issues, but gay things? I mean, there were international podcasts and English podcasts, definitely, uh, and Americans, but not in Sweden, not in Scandinavia, not at the time. Now there's plenty, which I think is fantastic because we need representation and we need different perspectives and it's not a competition. But back then, I think we were the first sort of gay podcast talking about gay issues and gay life, basically. Because we were sort of first ones doing that, it was important that we did not try and put on the role of the voice of the community or anything like that. So we didn't represent anyone else but ourselves. And that gave us the freedom to really talk about all different kinds of things from all different kinds of perspectives, not saying that this is the way it's like to be gay or this is the way it's like to be a black gay. It was just me and my friends talking. And then we kind of organically found our audience and they found us. Now there's plenty of different podcasts that are being produced by members of the community. And I think that's really beautiful. So you guys are groundbreaking then. 
Your words, but I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I hear when I've listened to the episodes is just some friends getting together. And I think for me, that's what makes it so relatable is it reminds me of when I get together with my friends and we just have a good time. And sometimes the conversation is serious and sometimes it's really wacky and funny. So I, I really mm. enjoy that part of it. Yeah, me too. And I mean, I think it was very much like just friends hanging around and you'd be like that fly on the wall, just listening in, like eavesdropping on someone's conversation. And that was kind of what we wanted it to be. And even now we don't have, or they don't have like a producer that sets like a very clear sort of trajectory for each episode or anything like that. It's more like everyone brings a subject and we discuss it. And sometimes we're done after 25 minutes. Sometimes we speak for like two hours. So it all depends on the different subjects that each podcast member brings to the table. I mean, throughout the years, we've done a lot of different things. We've talked about, you know, what it's like to fall in love, what it's like to date, what it's like to break up. We talked to, you know, some of the queens from RuPaul's Drag Race when they came to Sweden to kind of talk about their experiences. We talked about expensive soaps and fetishes. Like, it's, it's been all over the place. But that's also kind of what life is like, right? It's not just very themed. It's an organic thing. And it's, I think that's what makes it so interesting as well. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, I apologize in advance for changing the tone to something a bit more serious, but which voice is it. yours in the intro? Oh, very <laughs> serious question. <laughs> you know what? That is a take on the song La Cucaracha, but we sing uh, Berg Ministeriet instead. Uh, but the thing is, my voice is not there. It's just one guy doing all the voices ah, so okay. on the first episode after we recorded that we were like oh but we need an intro and he was like well let me just try this and he started singing and did all that he took like maybe 10 different takes going from really sort of low voice to like high pitch and just mixed it together so it's all him it's all robin <laughs> wow okay yeah. i'm glad i asked that question <laughs> yeah because i would look at the picture i'm like okay which one is that voice which one is this voice yeah no it's just robin and the funny thing is that intro was the thing that we got the most feedback on in the beginning and everyone was like can you please record something else it hurts my ears it's horrible but now it became our theme song so now everyone loves it but in the beginning they were like what are you doing and why <laughs> oh no i loved it because to me it just captures camp and what makes us uniquely who we are as especially as gay men mm. yeah also since moving to denmark it's nice to listen to the episodes that comes out every friday and i can still feel like i'm a part of my friends in that room so now i'm one of the listeners it's really wonderful to kind of have that yeah. so you mentioned already that you're from sweden are you from stockholm so I'm from a relatively small town about an hour outside of Stockholm named Södertälje. It's like an old worker class town. And um, it's been known for the past sort of 30 years as being quite a problematic area because sort of in the 60s and, and, and onwards, we've had a lot of immigrants coming to Sweden and especially to the area where my town is located. And so when I went to school, primary school and, and up until high school, I went to a school that was then labeled the most dangerous school in all of Sweden. So it was like, you know, like a ghetto area. Uh, and I say ghetto, you know, with what do you call these exclamation? No. Um, oh, like air quotes. <laughs> air quotes. Exactly. Because I never saw it as that because it was my everyday. But leaving and moving to Stockholm and seeing sort of the media coverage of my hometown, I was like, well, this is kind of unfair. But yes, it was problematic. And especially in like the 90s, where 
you have basically two different camps. The biggest, largest group of immigrants in uh, Södertälje, they come from Syria and Iran, Iraq, and the Middle East. And then on the other side, you had the skinheads, sort of the neo-Nazis, which was a big thing in the 90s here in Sweden. And thank God they're not around as much anymore. Well, they are, but they've changed clothes and they don't walk around in groups and screaming things. They're into politics now, which makes it a bit more scary, actually. And I didn't belong to any of those groups. And so I kind of snuck under the radar. But, you know, every now and then there was encounters here and there. So it was interesting way of growing up. But I think from my perspective, it was just the way things were. So I didn't really think of that, you know, back then. It's more like I think about those things now, you know, seeing that in retrospect. But then my dad lived in Stockholm. So I also like spent quite a lot of time in sort of Stockholm. So I would consider Stockholm to be my hometown. If people ask me where I'm from, I say Stockholm. Also because no one knows about Södertälje. So are both your parents from Sweden? So my mom is Swedish. She comes from a very Swedish family with roots up in the north of Sweden. So she's like blonde and blue-eyed and very Swedish. And my dad is from Mali in northwest Africa. And they met late 70s and had me in the beginning of the 80s. Mm -hmm. They both live in Sweden, but they were never married. But they separated when I was really young. So I mixed. When you're talking about the town that you grew up in, I wasn't really aware of Sweden before I first came there. But outside of Sweden is discussed as very progressive and very open. It seems like it's changed a lot since the time when you were growing up there. Sweden is very progressive and Sweden is very open. But back then it was more, how should I say, in one aspect, I think it was more naive, maybe. And just like everyone's welcome and everything's fine. And, you know, we had this idea of being this open country and that you know, if people moved to Sweden for whatever reason, they would just like fit in. And there was not a lot of work put into helping newcomers be part of society. So pretty soon it got quite segregated. And that's when the issues started, because then you have like almost entire areas where no one speaks Swedish, which is a problem. And then as a response to that, this sort of mundane, everyday kind of not super dangerous prejudice grew into, you know, a racist streak. And now I think the discussions are way wilder now than what they were back in, you know, the 80s and 90s. But I think also because now everyone has an opinion and the media landscape has changed and everyone who has an opinion has a way to broadcast that opinion and gain clout and, you know, all of that. So it's hard to say how much Sweden has changed and how much the different voices within Sweden maybe. Maybe it's that that has changed and the, the opportunity to actually talk about these things in a new way. And I think we see that all over the world, that, you know, we're at some kind of shift society-wise where we do talk about, you know, our problematic history and our progressive futures and how to kind of combine the two. But back then, I mean, if someone said the word racist, my thoughts immediately went to skinheads and those kind of, you know, aggressive groups that feed off violence and all of that. But when someone says the word now, I think more of sort of a structural thing in society and how a lot of people who act racist don't even know that they do. And it doesn't come from a place of malice necessarily, just ignorance and not knowing how to do things differently. So I think we have to kind of change the way we use that word, because if you're just going to call someone a racist, then it's very hard to reach that person after that. Uh, and if we're going to change the world, we have to have conversations and not just point fingers and cancel each other, I think. 
Yeah, I think there's some similarities in the states too. I mean, the states it seems like is more known for having that history, but we haven't really gotten deeper into the conversations about that because, as you said, we think of racist behavior as, as something that's really overt and violent.、Mm. My experiences of racism, the thing that kind of really has influenced me the most is not those few times where I had. Close encounters with Nazis on the street. It's been the tens of thousands of mini needles sticking me every day. That's the thing that kind of exhausts me.、Mm. Those big one-off situations that I've been in, and thank God, not very many times, just a, maybe a handful of times. They're very scary in the moment, but they don't necessarily affect me that much in the long-term aspect of it. That's the thing that kind of gets me. But you know. I consider myself quite blessed being, you know, in this part of the world where it's not as big a thing as it is in other places of the world. Not saying that it's not here because it is. It's like I think what you guys in in the states are experiencing is a whole another level than what we have here. So, what were you like as a kid growing up? <laughs> well, I was always kind of the center of attention within my group friends, and I was always the funny one. But I was also very controlled. Like I think I was drunk the first time ever when I was like eighteen, and I went to parties with my friends way earlier than that. But I never drank because I knew somewhere deep down that I was different. But I did not know exactly what it was and how to kind of name it. Like I played around with the whole idea of being gay, but it was too sort of foreign and, and strange for me. So I was like, nah, that's not it. So. I think I survived that by just being funny and kind of taking the attention away from what I didn't want to show the world. Control the narrative, so I was always in control. But I was fun. I also had like periods where I was really into something. Like for example, I had like a period of eight to ten years where I was obsessed with Michael Jackson, and that's how I learned English. I started to kind of read his lyrics. When I was like seven, because I loved the songs so much, so I spoke English way earlier than most of my friends, and I started dancing. I even had like fake plastic hair burnt into my fringe <laughs> so that it would hang down like Michael Jackson. I made the glitter glove. I had the whole nine yards, the whole package. Loved it. So I was quite expressive in my personality, yet being very shy about my inner world. I think, but I was a happy kid. I have another podcast that I co-host about introversion. So it sounds like you're more of an extroverted personality. Yeah, I definitely am. I mean, I remember I saw this poll that one of the magazines here in Stockholm, Sweden, asking people what their biggest fears in life was, and the second place was death. That's the second most common thing to fear, and first place was to talk in public, because in contrast to The way that you're brought up in the states, where you train how to present things, there's a whole different culture when it comes to kind of, you know, talking about yourself, talking about what you've done, your achievements, doing all of that. In Sweden, the finest thing you can do is just to sit down and be quiet. Basically, I never had that problem. I don't mind taking the stage. I don't mind being center of attention because I'm used to that role. But when、um, a few years back, everyone started talking about extroverts and introverts, if I'm going to mix the letters, I think I am an Extroverted introvert because I also need and I crave a lot of time for myself and just to shut down and not have anyone around me. Everyone tells me that I'm super social. I can pull it off and I do it wonderfully. But I think it's a survival mechanism that I learned early on how to kind of control the narrative in the room,、okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that people wouldn't necessarily find out who I was. That is the worst thing. 
So for example, I remember going out when I lived in Sydney, I once went out to a gay bar by myself. It was the worst night of my life because I just cannot start a conversation with someone if I'm alone. However, if I have one friend with me who's not even talking to me, but it's like in a corner making out with some dude, I have no problem talking to everyone because I know that I have my safe space somewhere in that club, you know, with my friend, even though he or she is not very close. But if you would dump me off in a like a random gay bar alone, I would just be on my phone and pretend that I'm waiting for someone and then just go. <laughs> Um, you mentioned language, and one of the things that impressed me and kind of intimidated me when I first came to Sweden was how everyone speaks English so well. Almost like if I didn't know you or I hadn't known that you were from Sweden, I would initially think you were American. A lot of people that I've met in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the reason why it's like that is because Sweden is a tiny country, not necessarily area-wise, but all in all, I think we're about 10 million Swedes on this planet. And so if we would go with the same sort of approach that the Germans or the French, which is to dub everything that's been shown on TV into their own language, we would be so isolated. We couldn't function in the world. So here we're fed English from day one in like TV shows, movies, you know, cartoons, whatever. It's in English. And of course, there are Swedish alternatives to that as well. And also we're taught English from the age of eight in school. It's a very crucial part in opening it up the world for Swedes, I think. So, and I grew up with two languages. My dad spoke French to me when I was a kid. I always replied in Swedish, but I understood French. And so when I was um, 20, I think it was, I moved to Paris the first time around. And that was to kind of take back the French that I never spoke, to be able to actually speak French. And three months in, I spoke French. So it was there. I wish Americans, we were required to speak another language. (laughs) Don't you have quite a lot of, especially in sort of the southern states, closer to the border of Mexico, like English-speaking Americans taking Spanish classes as well? There's a requirement to take it for two years in high school, at least from what mm. I remember, but it doesn't really stick, I don't think, for the most part. I'm, again, from Arizona, then lived in California in L.A. Mm. I will say when I took it formally, I realized I knew more than kind of like what you said about French. I had been around it. I could hear it usually throughout the day at some place or somewhere. But yeah, I don't think it really sticks with just two years. And then that's what around age 15 or so that you are required to do that. To compare my first idea of why Swedes speak English, we do it out of necessity. But you don't really have to if you're American or English or Canadian or Australian or South African, whatever, because you can travel the world and you can just speak in your own language. And most of the times people will understand and be able to communicate. But if I went to Gambia and started speaking Swedish, they'd be like, "Uh, what? (laughs) So obviously that wouldn't work. The universal language of the world is your native tongue. Yeah. Now you mentioned being different, connected to being gay. How old were you when you started to become aware of that part of yourself? I mean, the first time that I can remember that I thought of that, I was probably like, eight or nine. So it was really early, but I wasn't defining it as being gay. It was just, I all of a sudden, you know, caught feelings like butterflies in my stomach when I saw this guy. And I was like, what, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, I have to say, like, I grew up in a very open and progressive family. So my mom was always like, you know, people are different and that is fine. There's nothing right and wrong. So she was very like preaching that whole sort of idea. 
And then I started working at a record company, like a summer job type thing. And that was in, I think, 98 or 99 when Dana International won the Eurovision Song Contest. So she was the first sort of trans woman to win the Eurovision Song Contest. She was competing for Israel. And she came to Stockholm and was going to perform at Stockholm Pride. And the company that I worked for, the record company, we had her signed to our company. And so I got to go to Stockholm Pride. And that was the first time I was like, oh, wow, there's like a whole community of people that I can identify with and that I felt at home just being around. And the closing party at Stockholm Pride, I was then 18. So I, I already knew by that time, but I hadn't sort of really told anyone or anything. And I went to the closing party and I met this guy from Denmark and had a lovely time with him and thought that we were going to be boyfriends and get married. You know, I was very young and naive, but that was enough for me to kind of go, okay, well, this is the way it is. So just a few weeks after that, I told my friends and my family. So I was 19 when I came out. And funny thing, like now I just turned 40 a few days ago and I uh, moved to Denmark three years ago. And one night, about two years ago, I bump into Christian, the guy that I met at that party. And it was a very dear reunion to just go, oh, hi, thank you for opening up the doors. You know, it was really, it was really lovely to see him again. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, happy birthday or happy belated. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, my brother just had his birthday. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned in the intro that you have your own firm called the Odd Society. Can you explain mm. what that is? Sure. I am sort of a trained art director working within advertising. And that's what I've been doing for the past 15 years almost. And I've been working in agency world internationally and in Sweden. I love that job and I love the field of communication because if someone like myself with quite a low attention span, communication is really fun because you always have to learn new things. So when I met my current boyfriend, actually fiance, he's also an art director, but he's more focused on sort of graphic design and that part of things. And we decided that we were going to start our own business because uh, we've both been working in an agency set up and we were never really happy in working that way because it's quite hierarchical. It's very stressful. If you're creative, you come in and you're just supposed to shoot ideas and that is your currency. Your brain is your currency, which is absolutely fine. But we thought that if we were going to continue doing this for the coming 15, 20 years, how about we do it our own way? So we created our own little studio agency, The Odd Society, and it's just the two of us and two people don't make a society. So our whole idea was to surround ourselves with really talented people that we know who are independent, freelancers or independent creatives, designers, architects, strategists, you know, you name it, as long as you can create something and we can create a value for a client and you're the right person for the job, then, you know, welcome to the team kind of thing. So it's a bit like a gig economy idea, even though I don't like that word. I just feel like we have the opportunity now to create the perfect team for the perfect client and work on our terms, which is really, really nice. So we've been doing that for four years, working all over the Nordic region, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Most of our clients are in Norway and Sweden, but we're starting to get some interesting and bigger accounts in Denmark as well. And we do everything from designing hotels, like interior-wise, to visual identities and advertising campaigns. And it's really fun to be able to 
work with the love of your life as well. And at times, of course, challenging because we do everything together. Like we live together, we work together, but we have a way to kind of separate the two, the work-life balance to make sure that when we have time off, we are actually having time off. And when we're working, it's work mode. And also because we work with other people on different projects. So far, it's going really well and it's very exciting. Nice. I was going to ask that question, like, how is it working with your partner? It's really nice. Like when we first told people that we were going to do this, everyone was like, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's gone way over my expectations. It really has worked out really well. And I think also because we are quite different people and we are quite different in our skill set. And so he's a way better designer than I am. So I would never come in and be like, oh, let's change this because I know that my version of the same design is probably going to be crap compared to him. And then vice versa, when it comes to sort of more strategy and sort of design thinking and like facilitation and change management and all of that, that I'm kind of focused on, he's really helpful and he has his input and all that, but he also knows that that's kind of my area and we respect our different areas. And I think that's good and fundamental for it to work. We can still impress each other. He impresses me like every day with the stuff that he does. But I think it's very important when you have a setup like that, that you do involve other people and that you have projects with other people. Otherwise, you um, you miss all sort of the serendipitous input that you would otherwise get if you're in an agency environment because there's always going to be someone who does you know something completely left field and you go, whoa, what's that? Oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But when you're so in sync like, like you are with a partner like that, you need to kind of push for those moments to happen. And so it's important to have a good relationship with your clients and you can be inspired by them and they can be inspired by you and, you know, have almost like a professional open relationship, (laughs) so to speak. Well, it sounds like the skill set that you need uh, for a healthy romantic relationship, you are able to transfer that into your professional life. Mm, Yeah. And I mean, we've been doing it now for three years. We're we're growing and we're doing better and better every month. That's got to, you know, count for something. So I think we're on the right path here. But absolutely, sort of inspiration and sort of the the unexpected conversations, you have to seek those out a bit more than you would if you have like 40, 50 or 100 colleagues. Definitely. I like the name a lot. It just captures for me being the creative artist left of center. How did you mm. come up with that name? It's funny, like we quite often help companies come up with names. And then when we're going to come up with our own, that was like the hardest thing to do. We're like, should we be named this or that? It was just like impossible. But then we just put that aside for a second and we're like, okay, so what is it that we're going to do? What is our vision for our company, regardless of our name? And that was just that, that it's us. And then that we would surround ourselves with people, almost like a, a society of people all pitching in to create something wonderful. And when we started talking about that, we were like, oh, society is a really nice and inclusive. It's almost like a different take on sort of community and that that whole sort of sentiment of doing things together. Mm -hmm. And then because we wanted to do things in a different way and not necessarily have the same kind of price structure, work structure, process, like the most agencies that are out there, we're like, oh, but maybe it's just an odd society then. It's like, oh, but that's actually not a bad word. Let's just call it that. That's how we came up with it. In the name, it says something about, you know, doing things a bit differently and the fact that we need to come together and collaborate in order to create wonderful stuff. I like the quote. I actually wrote it down on your website about sitting on the same side of the table. 
I really like that. That stood out for me. Can you explain a little bit about? Sure. That? I mean, I worked with the big spenders like Nike, Procter and Gamble, Unilever. You know, th- those big players that invest a lot of money in advertising. And for me, the process is always the same. So they approach an agency and they say, "This is our problem. This is what we want you guys to solve." And the agency goes, "Okay, cool." And we put some strategies on it, and they, you know, come up with smart business solutions, and it then. It goes away to the creatives, and they're basically away somewhere in a room, coming up with a bunch of ideas, and then we go into pitch mode and go, "We think you should do this," and I think that's a very traditional way of creating value-adding communication or product development. We, as an external partner in a project like that, we have the benefit and the strength of looking at a, a company or. Product or service or whatever from sort of an outside perspective, which is super important, and that's why they hire agencies like big companies do. But the company itself have insights to their own businesses that an agency could never compete with because they sit with their product or service or you know whatever it is that they do and sell every single day. They know what their clients think. They know what's not functioning within their own organization. They have so many insights that an agency could never compete with. So for us, it was important to not have a Client list of like a hundred different clients, but rather make it ten and work really, really closely with them. And by saying that we sit on the same side of the table, it's like very transparent in the way that we work because we don't come in and have this attitude that we're going to solve your problem, but rather we're going to come in and we're going to collaborate with you so that you can solve your problem. And obviously, we do things for them as well. It's not just saying you should do this, but to have those conversations means that you actually start. To rise in the hierarchy, like it's very often that we sit with the board and talking about sort of structural changes that they need to do before they do a campaign, because if we would do a campaign today and it would be very successful, you couldn't handle it. So we need to make the things complete from the inside out and really work on sort of culture as well as advertising. And that's impossible if you see yourself as a external consultant. But if you go, how about we are your external in-house agency? And just change the dynamics. I mean, at least my experience is that we have very fruitful relationships and long ones. I mean, most of our clients we've been working with for years on like a weekly basis, and so it's good for us because we have stability in our company, and it's good for them because they trust us. And so, with trust, we can do more crazy things because you know that there's a fundamental trust there, and then it becomes more fun and more interesting, and the result just gets better. I think. I think of a doctor, like a really good doctor, who will ask me first what is going on, and then to go from there instead of like when you have somebody who kind of feels like they're talking over you. Absolutely, I hundred percent agree because I know that you know working at some of the bigger agencies in the world, and just hearing how quite often they talk about the client, saying, "Oh, they just don't get it," or "They're not brave enough to buy our idea," and I'm like. Well, if they're not brave enough to buy your idea, you haven't earned their trust. So earn their trust, and it will not be a battle about buying the idea. It will be how do we make this idea happen? Most people are too focused on the profit and the money, and they want to like quick in, deliver out, and spend as little time as possible to make the most money out of it as possible. And sure, that can be done, but that's not how I want to work. Maybe we are a little bit slower than most agencies, but the results are always good, and it's always implementable because our clients take ownership of it and really, you know, run with it for years, which is, to me, something of value way more than a quick fix.
Yeah, no, I agree. And for myself, I worked in graphic design and I've been doing some freelance off and on. And I always say that I want to make sure that you like it first and foremost. You know, I can mm. think it looks great, but if you don't feel it, then it's not going to have any value. Exactly. Did you start the agency before or after moving to Denmark? After. So we met like almost six years ago. And then there was like a period in the beginning where we weren't really dating, but we kept in contact. And then when we started to actually really date and have a, a relationship, it was like a long distance one. So I was in Stockholm and he was in Copenhagen, but he's Norwegian, but he lives in Denmark. So he had moved to Copenhagen about two years before that. And we went back and forth and then we were like, okay, so maybe we should just move in together. And then we had this idea that So we can either move in together in Stockholm, in Copenhagen, or in Oslo, because he's from Oslo. I didn't want him to move to Stockholm and move into my life, not knowing anyone in Stockholm. Like his introduction to Stockholm will be on my terms 100%. So I have the network of friends. I have the routines. I have, you know, my favorite bar. I have this and that. So he would basically move into my life and that would create this sort of unequal situation or we could move to oslo but then it will be the same thing just the opposite but since he was quite new in copenhagen and i've always loved copenhagen i was like let's move there because that's kind of neutral ground and then we can build something together rather than moving into each other's lives i've always been someone who's been traveling quite a lot and i lived abroad i lived in paris i lived in sydney i, I always want to get out and so after a, a long stretch of time here in stockholm i felt like i'm ready to pick up and move to Denmark. And so I did. And that's when we started Road Society. So I think like the first week we sent the papers into the registry to start your business and off we went. He had been working as a freelancer for many years before that. So he had clients to just bring into to our society from the beginning. So we didn't have to start completely fresh with no client. And I had some things here in Stockholm as well that I could start working on. Sounds very healthy and adult. <laughs> You know, doesn't it, it yeah, does, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's good that some things in life are healthy and adults because there's a lot of other things where it's a bit more gray area <laughs> yeah 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 as you were saying that i was like i need to write it down then i was like oh no wait i'll just listen to the recording <laughs> <laughs> so how do you like Copenhagen in denmark um i really really like it I was just having a conversation about this actually earlier today. Like, what's the difference between Stockholm and Copenhagen? And anyone who's listening who's been to Berlin, you know about sort of the grit of Berlin. And it's a bit messy and chaotic, but also bursting with sort of energy and creative energy and like culture. And, and it's just, it's very dynamic and lively. And Stockholm has that as well. But in Stockholm is very, at least in my opinion, quite uniform. It's just very polished there's no grit but still quite creative and you know we have that scene here as well but not nearly as much as in sort of berlin and copenhagen i think is the beautiful sort of sweet spot between the two so you have a system that really works and it's easy to live in denmark and copenhagen it just works it's very sort of modern like that but it also has a, like a very lively and you know bubbly subcultures and different sort of expressions It's way more dynamic than Stockholm, I think. There's a beautiful restaurant in every corner. There's so many like Michelin star restaurants. We have them in Stockholm as well. But if you go to a Michelin star restaurant, it's expensive here in Stockholm. Whilst in Denmark, they have a completely different approach to eating out. 
because they consider eating out a part of culture. So it should be accessible to everyone. So you can go into like a Michelin star restaurant and not be ruined and give all your life savings away and really enjoy like a really nice meal and beautiful experience. It's cheap enough for you to be able to do that like several times a month. Like in a normal year, there's so much going on and so many galleries and the art scene is huge and it's just so alive. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I realize now when I'm talking about it, I'm like, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And also the proximity to Europe. It is way closer to everything else in Europe. So you can travel quite easily. Denmark also, an island nation. Uh, There's ocean everywhere, which is really nice. So on a warm day, I can just hop on my back and ride a bike for like five minutes and I'm in the ocean, which is wonderful. Yeah, I discovered Stockholm through Copenhagen. I think I shared with you when we initially connected, but I haven't been back since 2015. But hearing you talk about Mm. it, it just, yeah, I want to go back. And I went to Berlin last year for my birthday and it felt, like you said, very electric. And at that point, I'd been in Stockholm for about four months. So I was like a, a shock to the system, but a good shock. But hearing that Copenhagen has that balance. It's a very different country to Sweden. I mean, like we are siblings, you know, the the country, Sweden and Denmark and Norway. But Denmark is the odd one out. I think Norway and Sweden is way more similar than Denmark because Denmark, they're way straighter when it comes to telling you what they think. There's no sugarcoating. The whole tall puppy syndrome is not as big a thing there. It's way more sort of continental European, if you will. And so that can be quite a shock, especially doing business, because they can be very straight shooters. And you'd be like, oh, could you please sugarcoat that a bit? Uh, (laughs) As a Swede, I'm like, oh, I don't know how to handle this directness. But it's a good thing, because at least you know what they think. And I think that comes down to sort of their politics as well. I mean, moving to Denmark, I was actually quite nervous when it comes to their view on immigrants, because they are also in that aspect, the odd one out. They're not very welcoming towards immigrants especially if you're a refugee like that that kind of immigrant and not necessarily a well-educated american or an english person because then it's no problem well if you're white basically but denmark is by far in my opinion the most racist country in scandinavia however copenhagen really isn't like any other you know big city that's a bubble of its own that's very progressive and very sort of interesting but there is a legacy there there is a structural problematic view on people who are different Mm. for sure i haven't experienced it firsthand yet but i wouldn't be shocked if i do for you what are some of the ways that you i guess take care of yourself how do i take care of myself like from an emotional psychological standpoint yeah i did a big sort of self work worked on myself a lot about 15 to 10 years ago I actually started going to therapy once every other week. I had been in a relationship then for about five years and it was my first relationship and it was like long-term. We were together for 10 years, but five years in, I started to see myself almost from the outside because when you live with someone, it's almost like having a mirror on yourself and your own behavior. And I could see that I had some problematic traits that I kind of wanted to work through. And then the therapist said, well, you, you like talking. I can tell. I'm like, oh, do I? It's like, yeah, and you also have a way of kind of expressing your feelings. So I would recommend that you start a different program. It's called psychoanalysis. I'm like, oh, I heard about that. That's some Freud stuff, right? He's like, yeah, but it's developed since then. The thing then was that you're supposed to meet your therapist minimum three times a week. 
for at least two years. And I'm like, that kind of commitment I'm not ready for. Mm -hmm. And I went to psychoanalysis four times a week for two and a half years. And that was quite intense. But it also gave me tools to think about my own behavior and my own thought patterns in a way that's still helping me today. So when you ask, what do I do to kind of take care of myself? My initial thoughts was, I don't really know, but I think I'm doing it every day. But every day I check in with myself and go, am I doing things now that are going in a positive direction or am I being sort of self-destructive? Because I have both sides, like most people. And I try to take responsibility for how I feel. Not saying that I can always, you know, decide if I'm going to be happy or sad, but I also do think that happiness is something that you can choose by really working on it and by trying to understand what you need. I speak to my fiance quite a lot about how I feel and we check in and go, this didn't feel right. This is, you know, how I want it to be. And then I have some really, really close friends that I can just pour my heart out to. And then the most important thing of all, we got a dog a year ago that is just filling my heart with joy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To answer your question in a shorter way, I think active decisions. Active decisions. I can be one step ahead of my saboteur that, you know, RuPaul would have said. That's important for me. So that's what I do. I try to make active choices. I heard that when you were talking about, you know, moving with your boyfriend or your fiance, sorry. That is also saying that, you know, you can plan your life. And I know firsthand that you really can't. I mean, the biggest thing that has happened to me and probably to you too has been things that we did not foresee. And all of a sudden we have to adopt a situation and we have to embrace it or walk away. When I'm talking about active decisions, it's like, what do I want to do? And what makes me feel good? And how can I be of help or service for others and try to actively do that rather than just to sit around and hope for things to change? Because they're not going to change unless I change. Being a participant in your life and not a victim. Yeah. So with language, you're Swedish, your fiance is Norwegian, and you're in Denmark. What language do you speak (laughs) together or in the home? We speak a mess, let me tell you. I mean, I speak Swedish, he speaks Norwegian, but I've sort of changed some of my vocabulary into Norwegian words, and he has changed some of his to Swedish words, and then we throw in a bit of Danish. I'm so confused. Mm. Like when I come back to Sweden, you know, I talk to my family and I talk to my old colleagues here, all of a sudden they go like, sorry, what? And I just had thrown in like a Danish word, you know, not knowing. It's a bit like language confusion deluxe in my head at the moment. But luckily enough, Swedish and Norwegian is very, very close. It's basically a dialect. Danish, however, it is also the same sort of language family. If I read something in Danish, you would, you know, often get it. But the way that they pronounce their words, oh my God, it's indistinguishable. It's just a noise. So it took me like... A good six months to just be able to go down to the grocery store and understand what the you know cashiers said to me. But when you crack the code and you can go, oh, now I get it. I get the melody. I know sort of how you use your dialect or you know the way that you speak. And if you crack that code, then everything falls into place. So now I actually I do speak Danish now, and I'm very proud of that. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're going to Spain. So pre-COVID, were you doing a lot of traveling? Yes, way more traveling than Greta Thunberg would have me do, to be honest. I traveled a lot. One of my biggest clients here in Stockholm, and I had to 
be in Stockholm quite often. So I probably flew back and forth between Copenhagen and Stockholm about three times a month. We uh, traveled a lot for leisure as well to the house in Spain. We traveled to Norway, to the Norwegian mountains and just, you know, being in nature there. And my best friends live in New York, Amsterdam, Berlin and London. So it was a lot of like weekend travels as well. So I was constantly traveling and I loved it because when I was a kid, my biggest dream was to travel. I also had like a whole wall in my room dedicated to different destinations around the world that I wanted to go to. Like I went to um, the local travel agent like once every six months to get their new catalog. And I would browse through the catalog and go, oh, that's a beautiful beach. And I kind of categorized the entire world based out of the clearness and blueness of the water on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the smell of an airport. And I know that's controversial to say now because we're supposed to be sustainable, but I'm doing a lot of things sustainably as well, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, and now I'm flying way less. Just that energy of going to a new place, it really excites me. Always learning, it sounds like. I think I get bored quite easily. Well, I do get bored quite easily. So another way to make sure to go back to your previous questions, how do I take care of myself? One thing is to counter my boredom and to be like, how can I make sure that I keep myself interested? Variation and exploring and you know doing new things is really something that makes me feel good. So that's what I've done. Post-COVID, I think I will travel way less also because I've actually experienced the beauty of traveling in your own region. Like last year when we couldn't, you know, go to Spain or go to New York or whatever, we just went back to Norway to where my boyfriend comes from. And they have a cabin up in the Norwegian mountains. And it's just one of the most exotic destinations I've ever been to. I was mind blown. It was spectacular. And it's basically our backyard. Well, I don't have any more questions. I just want to say thank you again. I really enjoyed it. And that quote you said about the airport, I'm going to remember that, about the smell of the airport. <laughs> it has a specific smell. I think it's jet fuel. <laughs> <laughs> jet fuel and cheap perfume. Yeah. It's a very unique place. I just love the energy. That's a song lyric, jet fuel and cheap perfume. <laughs> right? Someone should do a song about that. <laughs> yeah. Give you credit. Yes, you know we heard it first. <laughs> well, thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>